Good to be up here again. And this morning we will be looking at the Romans passage. And this will be a, a shorter homily and not so much an in-depth sermon. Our passage is a familiar and comforting one. There is a danger, of course, in preaching in a more devotional style about a familiar passage. And that is having what is said end up being reduced to a bumper sticker. In order to avoid that pitfall and to disillusion us of false comforts, I would like to spend some time talking about what the text is not saying. We will talk about two false conclusions that could be drawn from the text. Talk about the posture of heart the text seems to assume, and then finally be ready to receive the text's comfort. What the text is saying isn't all that complicated. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Pretty straightforward stuff in many ways. But let us not be falsely comforted by what we may read in between the lines. So first, this may be a shocker in some places, but I don't think it will be here. The text isn't saying that everything is going to work out the way you want it to, the way that I want it to. You could call this the too blessed to be stressed reading of the text. <laughs> the basic idea here would be to make the jump from the profound truth, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is pretty great. So the simple conclusion, my life is always going to be great. It's clear from the text that this is not a reasonable expectation. The text asks, will trouble, hardship, persecution, nakedness, danger, or sword separate us from the love of God? And it answers, no. The implication here is that Neither does the love of God separate us from those difficult things. They are not mutually exclusive. Paul's list, fearsome as it is, is pretty straightforward. But the term nakedness is worth lingering over just a bit. It can be two basic things, and I think both apply. Shame and deprivation. Honor and shame were social capital in the ancient world. Nakedness is shameful. Think down and out, vulnerable. Also, naked, nakedness is clearly not having what you want or what you need. Deprivation. Things like hardship, vulnerability, deprivation, and danger can coexist intermingled alongside the love of God. In verses 38 through 9, Paul spells out a longer list to reiterate his point. Instead of just listing things that can happen to us, he lists things whose power we may fear. Angels, rulers, things to come, powers. Nothing in all creation, he says, can separate us from the love of God. In no uncertain terms, it is God who is in control. His rule is secure, and in Christ, we are secure in his love. In our passage, Paul quotes Psalm 44:22, For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Persecution. A look at the context in Psalm 44 is illuminating. 
starting in verse 20, it reads, If we had forgotten the name of our God, or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourselves, rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And there the psalm ends. Aren't you glad things like that are in the Bible? Sometimes it feels like you're getting your butt kicked. You're doing everything you're supposed to, but it feels like God is asleep in the boat or has fallen overboard. Paul is saying, make no mistake, your senses deceive you. You are not separated from God's love. I don't need to belabor this. I think you all understand. I also think sometimes, though, our practical expectations with life don't match our theology. Jesus was pretty straightforward. In this world, you will have trouble. I can't develop this here, but I think it would be reasonable to say the New Testament asks asks us to expect more trouble as followers of Christ than if we just went along to get along. As Christians, we are resisting the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is going to create far more tension and friction than if we just went with the flow. Now, illusion number two. This would be the God is my co-pilot reading of the text. (laughs) The idea here jumps from the profound truth. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. To the simple conclusion, God has signed off on my plans. This one is easy to write off, perhaps. But I think we do this, don't we? I do. It's pretty easy to make that jump from our security and the love of Christ to God endorsing our plans, perspectives, values, and agendas. But let me ask you this. What is one thing that Paul does not include in his list of things that cannot separate you from God's love? Can you think of anything? What about self? I'm not making a theological statement about our eternal security. I'm actually thinking more about our day-to-day and month-to-month lives. It's pretty easy in our context to be busy, living out of a Western conservative worldview, with some biblical morality thrown in, and to get along pretty well. But seriously, who is in charge? Who is authoring and empowering the story? This morning's passage is actually the crescendo of an entire section, chapters 5 through 8. I was supposed to preach on part of Romans 6 back in March, right after COVID shut things down, but before Zoom church, and Joel simplified 
our lives and preached himself. Um, Chapter 6 includes that passage where Paul asks the rhetorical question, Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? He goes on to talk about how we can be slaves of sin, which leads to death, or slaves of God, which leads to righteousness. He's not really talking about our secure status in Christ at that point. Rather, the slavery language is driving out a daily dependence and obedience. One of the implications of the passage is that you are a slave to something. There's no such thing as the autonomous human being. We are, in Genesis, literally earthlings, and we are created as dependent creatures. So I ask again, who is in charge? Who's authoring and empowering the story? This theme keeps coming up for Paul. In chapter 8, now that we are free from slavery to sin, Paul talks about life in the Holy Spirit. Verses 5 and 6. That fan is nice, but it makes it tricky up here. (laughs) For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Here again we see a continual dependence, not autonomy. Further down in verses 14 to 19, Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Sons and daughters, children, heirs, positions of honor and privilege, to be sure, but under the daily authority of the pater familias, the head of the family, the head of the household. If the profound truth that nothing can separate you from the love of God leads us to leave here encouraged on our merry way with God as our co-pilot, we are missing out. But if we take it as the cornerstone and the capstone of a life lived along the way of the cross, a life authored by God and daily animated by the Holy Spirit, then, then we are on the path to glory. I want to push into this and try to clarify a bit more. Because we can err on the other side as well, can't we? Initiative, courage, risk-taking, discerning, and planning are all still good things. We don't want to end up with a bumper sticker of our own, a sort of let go and let God mentality. By the time Paul gets to the end of chapter 8, I think he is assuming a particular posture of heart. The best way that I know communicate this is to offer you two ways to use your hands, which is actually going to be 
quite a challenge if I have to hold my paper down. <laughs> um, so I'm adapting these from a great little talk by Rod Wilson, former president of Regent College. He offers four, four ways, but I'm going to stick with two because I think they point us toward the posture of dependence our text assumes. The first one is this. Striving. I don't know if you can see my hands, but they're clenched. I think many of us spend much of our time here. It may be like this. Maybe like this. Typing. But things are tight, and tremendous effort is going in. I'm not making any comment about whether this is sin or not. There's good striving, and there's bad striving. Some of us may even need to strive a bit more, but I would imagine, for many of us, this is our primary mode of operation. The second way to use your hands is not this, it is this. It is gift. Thankfully, this is a familiar posture to us in our liturgy here at King of Kings, and it is the posture of reception. command in Romans 6, my passage from March, is offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness. I don't think this is a do more, do better kind of thing. The command isn't obey, get yourselves together. It's not about this so much as it is about this. The command is to offer yourselves. To offer yourselves in complete obedience and dependence to the good master. It isn't primarily about work. It's about offering yourself and then receiving back God's gift. And this habitual practice makes you a slave to righteousness. Some of you know that Tammy's father, Jim, died this past February. I had the honor of speaking at his funeral, and since I was preparing to preach at the time, I shared some of these things because they remind me of Jim. Jim was a hard-working farmer, but the main posture of his heart was good. Maybe there is something to being a farmer that helps form this posture in us. A farmer is dependent, and the good one knows it. You can plant the seed, but you can't make it grow. You can care for the land and animals, but you can't control life and death. And you certainly can't control the weather. I can hear Jim's voice. You just get up in the morning and you get to work, doing the work God has given you to do for that day. No more and no less. And this is just as important. You receive back the harvest, whatever it is, as the gift of God. One more thing was nagging on me as I began to write this. One part of the text that I hadn't dealt with yet. Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors. I think that it is here that our comfort comes together. In what sense are we more than conquerors? 
most of that sentence is one Greek word, a basic word for winning decisively, coupled with the prefix hyper, meaning over or beyond. We are hyper winners, uber winners, <laughs> extraordinary, exceeding victory in a continual state. How does this status jive with our circumstances, with pandemic and uncertainty, with the circumstances of Paul and the Romans, with vulnerability and suffering? In these things, we're more than conquerors. Two things jump out at me from the context in Romans. The first is eternity. Paul says in 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. We are right to guard against being so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. And we are right to look to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. But we are also right to take a long view, an eternal view. We are right to hope in what is unseen, to hope in what cannot exist without resurrection and new creation. But within that perspective, we are golden. I love how Paul describes things in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, the things that are unseen are eternal. Finally, we are more than conquerors even now because of our union with Christ. This goes so far beyond praying the sinner's prayer and hoping in eternity with Christ. It includes those things, but it also it's also our daily lived experience of being in Christ. We aren't more than conquerors because of our striving. The victory is received as gift, once and for all, but also continually and daily. We walk in the Holy Spirit. We abide in the vine by living from a posture of dependence and reception posture of gift. Of course, this is not easy. Indeed, if we've learned anything this morning, we won't expect that. It is a mystery, but it is nonetheless true. All the more so when life is full of struggle and suffering. Be reminded of what I read earlier. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him.
nothing can separate you from the love of God. You will not be too blessed to be stressed. In this world, you will have trouble. So expect it. But take comfort. God will not be your co-pilot. Instead, continually offer yourselves to him in dependence, living from a posture of fear. In the trials and tribulations of your journey, indeed in the suffering, you are heirs of the self-giving king, fellow heirs with Christ, the overcomer. Your creator has already written the end of your story and its glory. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. What a gift.